It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. One of the existential questions that we've all had to face during this seemingly endless coronavirus crisis is, what is an essential service? Who among us are so important that we get to go to the office or go somewhere, we can leave our houses, we have to work, we're vital, while the rest of us, you know, if you can work from home, great, if not, see you in when, a month, two months, three months, who knows? Well, the answer has come from the state of Florida. The state of Florida now says, decision by the governor, Ron DeSantis, that professional wrestling is an essential service, at least in Florida. Uh, this is uh, breaking news, I guess. World Wrestling Entertainment has been airing these events from its empty performance center near Orlando. Uh, now, I don't quite see how wrestlers get to practice social distancing. If there's something I'm missing here, but nevertheless, uh, Governor DeSantis intervened. He had taken a lot of heat, as you may recall, for uh, being one of the last governors to actually issue a stay-at-home order. Anyway, he says this is important business in Florida. The wrestlers can go there and do their wrestling or their fake wrestling, (laughs) as you might describe it. And that is essential, I guess, to the Florida economy, you you name it. Uh, Chris Cuomo is walking back some comments that he made yesterday, uh, he's not quite repudiating them. And I think some of the reporting this has been unfair. Uh, as you know, Cuomo, CNN anchor, got the uh, coronavirus, uh, did some shows from his basement looking awful. I guess he's mostly over the symptoms now. But he did this rant on his Sirius XM show in which he says, I don't like what I do professionally. Uh, it doesn't mean that much to me. I want to make a difference. I don't think I really matter. It was this whole incident where some bozo... Um, biker confronted him outside his house in Southampton and he felt he couldn't let him have it because then that would be a story for the New York Post. He says, I already make millions of dollars a year. I don't need any more money. Now, some people reported that as Chris Cuomo denounces CNN, rips CNN. He wasn't criticizing CNN. He was criticizing himself and going through some soul searching after having this terrible disease. Well, yesterday went back on the uh, serious show and said, I love where I am. I love the position I've been giving, and I love who I'm doing it with. Those are all matters of fact. No place has ever been better to me. No place has ever given me the opportunities that Jeff Zucker has. Um, so, again, you know, I understand probably this caused some consternation within the hallways at CNN because it did sound like, uh, Cuomo was kind of ready to walk away from it or so frustrated by it. He did say, look, yesterday, it is frustrating to do this job in an environment where people are not interested and open. It is hard to practice journalism when people are so intent on believing what they want to believe for political advantage. I agree with that. I say that every day. I say that to myself. I can deliver the most balanced, perfect, fair to both sides, fair to everyone piece, whether it's something I'm writing, whether it's something I'm saying on television. And, you know, you can just time it with a stopwatch. Five seconds later, it'll be, you are such a never-Trumper. You've always hated Trump. Not true. I've known the president for 30 years. Or you are so in the tank for Trump, you can't grapple with the fact that he's a liar and misinforms and he's to blame for all this. And that's not true either. I've criticized him plenty for his handling of coronavirus, but doesn't matter. People hear what they want to hear. All right, so just to finish the Cuomo quote, it makes you question, is it worth the effort? Can I make a difference? Can I personally make a difference? Is the way I'm doing this working? And then he said, I love what I'm doing. It doesn't mean it isn't frustrating. I don't think it's ever mattered more than it has during 
that administration, meaning the Trump administration, because Chris Cuomo is now sort of out of the closet, having called Trump a piece of S or something with that word in it, uh, that, you know, while he says that he doesn't like getting BS from both Democrats and Republicans, clearly the brother of the New York governor uh, is now intent on holding the president accountable or blaming the president, depending on your point of view. All right. Speaking of that uh, particular president and, you know, the latest numbers, I guess yesterday was the worst day, the worst single day total. It's so hard to wrap your head around these numbers. 2,228 people died yesterday, Tuesday, from the coronavirus. This is a tally by Reuters. Um, The total now is 28,300. Wow. I mean, it is just really difficult. I remember when it was reaching 1,000. It was like, I was on the air. I was like, wow, it's reaching 1,000. The next week it was passing 2,000. Now, 2,228 on a single day in the United States of America, deaths from the coronavirus. So, story number one. Here's the framing. So, I talked a lot yesterday about Trump and the governors, and Trump says only he has the power uh, to reopen the economy, and he's gotten all this flack, and we'll get to that in a moment. But then at last night's briefing, after the podcast, he went after the WHO, the World Health Organization, and announced that he is halting U.S. aid to that international group. And that, of course, brought international condemnation. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the WHO. Clearly, the WHO uh, made big mistakes in handling this. Clearly, the WHO was covering up for China, which lied, which was deceitful, uh, which did not uh, share information early on on the extent of this uh, virus that would turn into a pandemic around the globe. So the president says so much death has been caused by their mistakes. Uh, He said that uh, he would conduct a review to determine whether the WHO was responsible for severely mismanaging and covering up the spread and, you know, what was happening in China in that early time. But here's the problem the president faces, and the New York Times story says this, and lots of TV people say it and everything else. The criticism of the WHO about how it handled China early could also be applied to President Trump. I mean, this is not an opinion. This is not anti-Trump. This is not pro-Trump. It's fact. Fact is that on January 24th, this is about a month after the virus was discovered in Wuhan, uh, Trump tweeted the following. China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. And then he went on to say that, uh, you know, thank you to President Xi. Um, Yesterday, the thing was held in the Rose Garden. He was asked about this, of course, and he wouldn't really address the inconsistency. He said he'd love to have a good relationship with China. Uh, Why am I the only leader who closed my borders against China? Actually, there were some other countries that uh, did that. Pressed on why he's taking action now. Trump said the WHO is very China-centric without explaining exactly what that meant. Um, And, of course, here's a statement from the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, saying uh, the WHO must be supported as it is absolutely critical to the world's efforts to win the war against COVID-19. So, look, what's happening here is 
This is the same thing the president did by saying the governors, you know, don't don't really control this. I control it. Knowing full well that all these pundits and legal scholars would come forth and say that's not into the Constitution. You're full of it, but he projects an image of strength. Now, did the WAO, WHO, for all of its flaws and faults and mishandling of this, uh, do and say things that were different from what the president did in those early days in January? Not really. But the president knows he will project an image of strength. He's got the power, not the governor's. He's going to decide when to reopen the economy. Uh, he is going to uh, withhold U.S. funding while he reviews it from the World Health Organization. Well, he's going to take the brunt of the criticism from around the globe. But his supporters love that, and they see him as standing up to this international organization, standing up to the governors, many of whom, of course, are Democrats, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, and others in the big blue states. Um, also, as part of this, uh, I will report, and looking here at a, um, the reaction piece, which the president knew, New York Times. President Trump claimed that he wielded total authority in the pandemic, prompted rebellion not just from governors, Legal scholars across the ideological spectrum on Tuesday rejected his declaration that ultimately he, not state leaders, will decide when to risk lifting social distancing limits in order to reopen businesses. Here was the Trump quote, when somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. But the Constitution doesn't say that. And even some Republicans have said that. Republican scholars, Republican governors, um... And uh, Brett Baer, my colleague at Fox News, said the following on Fox yesterday. If President Obama had said those words that you heard from President Trump, that the authority is total with the presidency, you know, conservatives' heads would have exploded across the board. And that is so right. Uh, Conservatives and Republicans complained for eight years about Obama expanding his executive authority. And I'm not saying that that wasn't a legitimate complaint when he did with the Dreamers, uh, allowing all the, you know, whether I happen to agree with it or not, whether you happen to agree with it or not, doing it by executive order, the whole thing with the pen and the pad, uh, he was usurping the authority of Congress. And Congress let him do it, or at least was not able to overturn it. There were lawsuits, as I recall, and there were a number of areas in which that was the case. But now that President Trump is saying, I have the authority and all of that, um, you have a lot of people who support this president who suddenly are not concerned about executive overreach or the whole notion of federalism, which is, yes, the federal government is very powerful. Uh, the presidency is very powerful. But we have a system uh, here where if you're New York or Utah or Florida or Arizona or you name it, you know, a lot of authority is vested in the governors and also in the mayors. Um, the president kind of walked that back a little bit, saying, well, I'm going to authorize the governors to take steps, and I recognize that all governors are going to move at the same time. I'm not going to pressure them. That was his way of saying, look, um, I'm not going to, this is all words. Obviously, the governors will have to be on board, and if the governor of New York or California is not on board with what I, I, I want to do, they get to make that decision. I'm authorizing them. Somebody said on Twitter, he's authorizing the sun to come up in the morning. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, interesting. Uh, he made the rounds, I mentioned this yesterday, uh, of the morning shows, and he just totally ripped Trump apart on this very point. He said the president was being schizophrenic, that this was frightening, that of course he doesn't have this authority, that he's acting like a king, that he's breaking the Constitution. These are all uh, direct quotes from uh, Democratic governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, now in his third term. But then, last night on one of the shows, he said... 
of Trump. If he wants a fight, he's not going to get it from me, period. He said, and this was interesting, you know, Cuomo said, it takes great strength, maybe greater strength, to walk away from a fight. And he says, basically he's saying, this is a time people are dying. It's too important for politics, so I'm not going to fight Trump uh, over this. But he had just gotten all these interviews in which he did fight Trump over this. And I guess now he's saying, okay, I've said my piece. Now I'm going to try to rise above, etc. cetera. Uh, John King on CNN talking about Trump saying he will authorize the governors. That was a full retreat wrapped in Trumpian bluster. I will authorize the governors to do their jobs. He has no authority, says John King. Okay, story number two. Trump's name on the checks. This is another instance where president knows his critics are going to go absolutely bonkers. So now we get word late yesterday, the Treasury Department has ordered that Donald J. Trump's name be printed on the stimulus checks that the IRS is rushing to send to tens of millions of Americans. According to the Washington Post, a process that could slow their delivery by a few days. Uh, senior IRS officials said, now this sounds like what? We're going to hold up the check so that Trump can have his name on the check? Uh, these are the $1,200 checks that were authorized in that $2.2 trillion bailout bill. They're going to go to 70 million Americans. I guess if you get direct deposit, then you don't get it. President Donald J. Trump will appear on the left side of the payment. The first time this has ever happened. Uh, this, uh, usually, I mean, there's an argument the president doesn't even have the authority to do this, but Steve Mnuchin is going along. Treasury officials disputed that the checks would be delayed, saying, oh, it's always going to be in a few days. Um, but look, the people getting the checks, they're not going to care. They want the money. If Trump's name is on it, Trump's name is not on it. A lot of people who see Trump's name on it will reinforce that he is leading this effort, so it helps him politically. Uh, Trump had privately suggested to Mnuchin, who is part of his job oversees the IRS, to allow the president to formally sign the checks, uh, according to three administration officials who spoke on condition of anonymity. But that is not happening. And of course, everyone's doing graphics showing a $1 bill, and instead of George Washington's face, you got Trump's face superimposed on it. So that's the political move on the checks. I'm just glad the checks are going out. I wish they were going out sooner. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number three. I didn't get a chance to see until after the podcast the 12-minute video that Barack Obama made uh, endorsing um, Joe Biden. And um, it was interesting. Uh, and here's the most interesting thing that Barack Obama said. To meet the moment, the Democratic Party will have to be bold. Because remember, he's also trying to speak to Bernie Sanders supporters. I could not be prouder of the incredible progress we made during my presidency together. But if I were running today, says Obama, I wouldn't run the same race or have the same platform as I did in 2008. The world is different. There's too much unfinished business for us just to look backwards. We have to look to the future. And he said that Joe understands this. And he said that Bernie understands this. These aren't normal times. He didn't mention his successor by name. But he certainly intimated that the current administration is doing a horrible job on coronavirus. And on this question of how progressive you can be at this time, Obama says, of course, Democrats may not always agree on every detail of the best way to bring about each and every one of these changes, but we do agree that they're needed. And that only happens if we win the election. So he's speaking here, of course, to potential Biden supporters, but he's speaking as much to um, supporters uh, who had gone for Bernie. And Bernie also... Uh, releasing his own video backing Biden. Now, today, this morning, Liz Warren, Elizabeth Warren coming out and finally, you know, after everybody else has done it, uh, tweets in this moment of crisis, it's more important than ever that the president restores Americans' good faith. 
Uh, I've seen Joe Biden help our nation rebuild. Today I'm endorsing him. I didn't think that was much. Turns out she made a video too. So she's on board. And you know, the disadvantage, excuse me, the disadvantage for the Democrats is it's all videos. You know, Elizabeth Warren can't appear with Joe Biden. President Obama can't appear with Joe Biden. I'm sure he will in the fall when presumably uh, we'll be back to a regular campaigning and not uh, um, virtual campaigning. But it leads to an interesting piece in the style section of the Washington Post. And I'll just read it to you. It's a news story, but it's a feature uh, by Ben Terrace. Joe Biden, the idea, lives in our minds. He's a statesman, a senator, a vice president, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Joe Biden, the man, on the other hand, takes up considerably less space. Quote, I'm locked in a basement, he said, live streaming into the Pennsylvania AFL-CIO's virtual convention from Delaware, like a lot of you are. Uh, This month, Biden clinched a nomination, the biggest thing to happen in his career, and yet he's shrunken down to the size of an iPhone screen or panel in a Zoom chat. The candidate has never seemed quite so small. And, you know, that rings a bell. I mean, with President Trump uh, having the world stage, having the two-hour news conferences from the White House, carried live on cable news, I know everyone doesn't agree with that, Biden is like a little box. It's not his fault. And the campaign points out, look, he's doing a lot of TV from his Delaware basement. By the way, he could use better lighting and a better camera. Could somebody please chip in and just, you know, so he doesn't look like this uh, fuzzy figure. But he's gone on The View. He's gone on Jimmy Kimmel. He was on with CNN with Chris Cuomo, the aforementioned Cuomo, the other Cuomo. Um, He chatted with Bernie Sanders on Periscope when they were calling for unity and so forth. Uh, Maybe Biden has no choice but to follow the CDC guidelines, says this Washington Post story. And maybe the approach will have political benefits. I mentioned this the other day. It's possible voters will look at Biden stuck at home and see a pocket-sized reflection of themselves, even though he wears a suit, including the pants, his campaign confirmed. I don't always wear nice pants when I do this uh, stuff. Um, But then again, after a month of amateur haircuts, canceled gym memberships, and questionable personal hygiene, who wants to look in the mirror right now? So the piece goes on to say that maybe if Biden's, the idea of Biden is a return to normalcy, maybe this is all he needs is to stay at home. Uh, So what if he stumbled at the debates by saying things like, my time is up? Uh, Perhaps all he needs to win this election is not to be Trump. The president may be getting good television ratings, but the more people hear him speak, the more of them seem to disapprove of the job he's doing, at least according to certain recent polls. Perhaps the opposite is true of Biden. And he talks about an L.A. Times column uh, saying Joe Biden is stuck in his basement. It just might help him win. But I do think the smallness thing is a problem. I mean, Biden can't loom as large. He doesn't have a job. He, I mean, he does in the sense that he is the de facto Democratic nominee, but he's not a senator. He's not a governor like Andrew Cuomo. And it's Cuomo who is the face of the Democratic Party right now in this pandemic. Story number four, uh, I was able to do a a piece on special report yesterday from my home, uh, sitting in the home office, about this whole question, which I talked about extensively on the podcast. The New York Times, uh, finally, after 19 days, publishing a detailed and well-reported story on the allegations by Tara Reid from 1993 that Joe Biden sexually assaulted her as a senator. And the Washington Post, which has interviewed Tara Reid extensively, didn't publish a story, but did publish one Monday, the day after the New York Times piece. So the, the, the point of the story was, was this different than the way that both papers handled the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. 
So yesterday, Dean Baquet, the executive editor of the New York Times, did a Q&A with his media guy, Ben Smith, and he tried to explain the differences. And I give him credit for doing that, for being open about it. I don't find what he said very convincing, but here it is for your consideration. Uh, why no story for 19 days? Why not release write a short story saying, you know, these allegations have been made? Well, mainly, says Baquet, I thought what the New York Times could offer and should try to offer was the reporting to help people understand what to make of a fairly serious allegation against a guy who had been a vice president of the U.S. and was knocking on the door of being his party's nominee. Look, I get the argument that the Times should have run at least something. Just do a short, straightforward news story. But I'm not sure that doing this sort of straightforward news story would have helped the reader understand. Um, to be honest, he says, it wasn't like we were in a heated race with the clock ticking. The main obligation was to get a really sensitive story as close to right as we could. And he says, look, Biden stands X percent chance of being the next president. And this was a pretty powerful reason to write and publish. So the question comes back, well, what about the way you handled Kavanaugh? And particularly Julie Swetnick. She was the one who was represented, you remember, by Michael Avenatti. She said that Kavanaugh had been involved in these frat house rapes and then kind of walked it back. She never had any evidence. The Times wrote a story the same day and said in that story, this is 2018, None of Ms. Swetnick's claims could be independently corroborated. Why was Kavanaugh treated differently? Here's Dean Baquet's answer. Kavanaugh was already in a public forum in a large way. Kavanaugh's status as Supreme Court justice was in question because of a very serious allegation. And when I say in a public way, I don't mean in the public way of Tara Reid's. If you ask the average person in America, they're not going to know about the Tara Reid case. Well, that's partially because of the, what the Times did. So I thought if the New York Times was going to introduce this to readers, we needed to introduce it with some reporting and perspective. Okay, finally, there was a lot of attention being paid to this. The Times went back and edited a, a, um, a line in the original story after a complaint from the Biden campaign. The original story said, the Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden, meaning often with people who are serial harassers or abusers, you find other cases. The Times didn't find that. The revised sentence read, the Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden beyond the hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. Why'd you do that? Dean Baquet. Well, a lot of us, including me, had looked at the story, looked at it before the story went into the paper, and I think the campaign thought the phrasing was awkward and made it look like there were other instances in which he'd been accused of sexual misconduct, and that's not what the sentence was intended to say. Why not explain that? It was so-called stealth editing. We didn't think it was a factual mistake. Look, the bottom line here is that although there are, are holes and discrepancies and questions about Tara Reid's account, uh, why she did this when she was backing Bernie, when she was saying wonderful things about Vladimir Putin, why she, in her initial interviews with the Washington Post last year, said, yeah, Biden touched my neck and shoulders and it made me uncomfortable, didn't say anything about supposedly putting his hand under her skirt. Didn't say anything about that. She says, oh, I didn't have the courage to do it. So there's all these questions. But nevertheless, she had more corroboration in the form of a friend uh, quoted by both papers, but the, but the identity has been withheld, than Christine Blasey Ford did with her initial allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. And so it's impossible not to conclude there's a double standard here in the way the two cases were treated. And finally, story number five. Interesting little New York Times piece about Rush Limbaugh, but more specifically about Donald Trump, who, of course, recently gave Rush the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Early March, it's Saturday. Donald Trump is wearing a baseball cap. He went into the sit room for a meeting with the Coronavirus Task Force. 
and he had something he wanted to share. He wanted to start a White House talk radio show. Now, at the time, this is the middle of March, the virus was rapidly spreading across the country. Trump would soon announce a ban on European travel. A talk radio show, Trump excitedly explained, would allow him to quell Americans' fears and answer their questions about the pandemic directly, according to three White House officials who heard the pitch. There would be no screening, just an open line for people to call, Hello, you're on the phone with the president. Michigan, hello, Donald Trump here. (laughs) But that Saturday, almost as soon as he said it, the president uh, outlined one reason he would not be moving forward with this idea. He did not want to compete with Rush Limbaugh. No one in the room was sure how to respond, says the Times. Uh, Someone said, well, you could host it in the mornings or on weekends to steer clear of uh, Rush's, you know, he's on from noon to 3 Eastern, uh, Monday to Friday, with a huge audience. But Trump shook his head, saying he envisioned the show as two hours a day every day. And were it not for Limbaugh, he would do it. Well, he's not doing it. And I guess what he did instead is, instead of having a two-hour radio show where people could call in, he has a two-hour TV show every day that is carried live by the cable networks that increasingly is becoming a defense of his handling of the coronavirus crisis, attacks on individual reporters who ask questions. Some of them are more aggressive than others, but most of the questions, in my view, are legitimate. Fencing with the governors, which he's resumed doing, as we talked about at the top of the podcast, and um, going after uh, perceived uh, critics, uh, going after the WHO, going after anybody who's, who's, who's finding fault with him. So he's got his show, and it doesn't compete with Rush. It's called the White House Coronavirus Briefings, they air every day. They start around 5.30 Eastern, although yesterday started 6.30 Eastern, which I appreciated because that enabled me to get my story about the Biden allegations onto special report because the entire show wasn't blown out. That's how we all roll these days, folks. You know, we get on when we can, but there's a lot of breaking news. Hope you like what we're doing here. I hope you'll subscribe to us at uh, foxnewspodcast.com or Google Play or Apple iTunes. Uh, And I hope you're staying safe, and I hope you're bearing up, and I hope you're not going stir-crazy. And I'm trying to do my part here with what I can do with McCollum, uh, with going on Fox, social distancing, of course, and with this podcast. And we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.